Hello, welcome to the Living Undeterred podcast today. I am the host, Jeffrey Johnston. Today, I am super excited uh, to introduce my guest, uh, Patrick Moore from Roswell, Georgia. And uh, we're going to navigate through a lot of stuff. And I'm, I'll have to confess, I am in a little bit of new uh, territory in his readings and his writings. But I want to have him talk about his book today. Talk about changing the narrative uh, breaking down walls on mental health and specifically our approach with addiction. Uh, and with that, Patrick, why don't you introduce yourself and then tell us why you think I invited you on my show today. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for your invitation. I don't know why, other than <laughs> uh, just from the uh, meeting you and getting to know you a little bit, uh, you are, uh, what I like to say is autonomous. You're committed to doing something. You don't know what it is you're going to do yet, but it doesn't matter. You're committed to it. You have, like myself, a certain amount of faith. I, I, we're not going to operate on problem solving from a fear base kind of, we're going to, well, I don't want to be in the problem anymore. I want to be in the solution. And that's what I, I see in you, and I think that's what you see in me. So that's that's what I do. I'm a basically a retired professional counselor now, but I was a licensed professional counselor that worked in the treatment industry. I'm very familiar with the recovery. I'm a friend of Bill's, and everybody who's a friend of Bill will understand what that means. And uh, I was uh, uh, given the opportunity to work at a. Uh, fairly large college here in Georgia, Kennesaw State University, and uh, to do prevention education. Prevention is different from treatment. Uh, we're in a we're in a life and death situation at the treatment end of the spectrum. Prevention is all about teaching and their ideas are totally different and from my perspective, uh, totally ineffective. And uh, I, had to, and I don't mind t- telling people some people that, and they didn't, and they didn't like hearing it. Uh, but they gave me enough rope <laughs> to do something different, so I did, and I did only what I knew to do, which is to take treatment models and apply them to college students, mm-hmm. and then I look for a way to measure that, and we call that research, and. Uh, I did. I found a way to measure it, but I found a lot more along the way because uh, I did a literature review and I fell into this risk response stuff and one thing leads to another and after a while you're in a totally different place. And I had that, so I left to go write my book, which I did, called Prehab, Leveraging Perception to End Substance Abuse. It's on Amazon. I wrote that in part to understand what it is I found. I didn't know what I found really. I knew I found something. And I finally found the right statistical test to apply to my data that uh, showed me that uh, we had a breakthrough. And that's what I've been trying to introduce one person at a time or one post at a time or Mm-hmm. a little bit of Google advertising and talking to people like you. So I think we're at the, at a paradigm shift on how to uh, prevent and treat addiction. 
I think we can look at it differently. And there's all kinds of, so we can go a lot of different directions from there. But Yeah, I, I fully agree with you there, Patrick. I think um, if we keep tr- reacting the same way, and maybe that's what uh, treatment is, is basically a reaction. Um, if we react the same way to these issues and we expect different outcomes, uh, I think we're kidding ourselves as a society. I mean, I know when my son Seth died of a heroin overdose, I think there was 56,000 Americans died that year of opioid overdoses. I think there was close to 80,000 last year. And and here's here's the frustrating part for me, Patrick, is we know more about all this stuff than we did when my son died, but there's more of us dying. And so the information out there isn't isn't working. It I I write about this in my book. Um and you showed your book. I'm going to show mine. <laughs> There's my book. That's my son, Seth. He would have been 27 years old this year. And um, I'm going to get a copy to you uh, out in the mail. Uh, every guest on my podcast gets a copy. So, um, I'll trade you. Yeah, but where I was going with this is that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to uh, get people to look at traditional ways that we've dealt with these things. And I, you know, I, I was no different when Seth was told he had hyperactivity and he was diagnosed with, you know, ADD, which is apparently turns you into a werewolf at midnight or something. I don't know. Apparently it's bad for me. It's been a godsend, but for him, he took it as a problem and Hey, guess what, Patrick, let's give him Adderall. And, you know, Seth had an underlying addictive personality. I'm sure he had some mental health issues that at 15, we haven't, we hadn't diagnosed yet. And all that Adderall did is just open the frickin' floodgates to exploring other alternatives like alcohol and marijuana and cocaine and ultimately heroin laced with fentanyl. But its, it's spark, its genesis came from a diagnosis of something as mundane as ADD. You know, it, it isn't like he had schizophrenia or something like that. It was a very serious mental illness. ADD, I don't know if that's even a mental illness. It's not. It's, um, I don't think so. Yeah, but I think that's the way society looks at it. Well, if you're a medical person, there's that's that's the way to look at it. It's got to be some something like that, and there's got to be a a medicinal fix for it. And that's better living through chemistry starts starts right there. Now, that doesn't mean uh, everybody's going to be addicted because they got medicated mm-hmm. as a kid. And it doesn't mean right. uh, anything else. What I find, but I do, but it is influential. And it's, it's very influential to people who start to use their gifts. And uh, to me, uh, ADHD or, you know, hyperactivity, those are gifts to me. In other words, I, I mm-hmm. like, I like when I get on an airplane. I like for the pilot to be able to multitask and keep things straight. I like that. I like them to be awake. I, like, I want them to be alert. I don't want them to have to drink coffee to pay attention, and I don't want to slow them down. Right. <laughs> All those people—they were weeded out of the culture long back in the caveman day. The thoughtful people gone a long time ago. They were food. Right. That's the way I taught my classes. That's evolutionary. That's evolutionary psychology. ADD right. is a survival mechanism. That's why we're still here. 
I agree. Uh, why do you want to do anything? To, why would you? So it's a little crazy. I've also been influenced by a bike, uh, a guy named Alfred Adler. I He's saw one that. of my yep. heroes. And Adler is the guy that came up with the inferiority complex, meaning he treated blind people. He was a doctor. He was an eye doctor. So he treated people with real brain damage. They were blind. That Your eyes are part of your brain. And uh, he noticed that they compensated for their inability to see and live their lives. And that's an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. And he noticed that people tended to compensate whether they had a real injury or not. And that kind of got them into the realm of the psychological. Uh, so in the, from the individual psychology or Adlerian perspective, there is no mental illness. There's no bipolar. There is no anxiety. There is no depression. And any of those things are symptoms of, uh, based on mistaken goals. that That's kind of what individual psychology is. So if you have a mistaken goal and you keep driving at it, uh, after a while, you're going to get tired and you will start to have symptoms and you wait longer and longer and you start to figure out how to survive rather than change your goal. And that's basically addiction. People who believe they're autonomous because they feel that way that's what affective means, feeling. The affective risk response system, you use your feelings to figure out what's going on. Don't have time to do statistical analysis. Humans are really good at this. Mm-hmm. Really good. I, I got a whole show about how good we are. I got a math problem. I, did I give you the math problem? See, no. no. You won't get it. I'll tell you the answer. And the reason you won't get it is because you're fast. That's it. That's the that's the point of the exercise. So if I have a baseball and a baseball bat and together they equal $1.10, okay? Baseball, baseball, baseball bat over here, baseball here. Together they equal $1.10. The baseball bat is one dollar more than the ball. How much no, is the I'm ball? I'm not playing this. I'm not playing this game. I'm horrible at these I'm, word problems. I'll help you. A math professor would say ten cents. Yeah. Because if it's a dollar more than the ball, the ball's ten cents, then a dollar and the ball together would equal a dollar ten. But that doesn't work out mathematically because if the bat was a dollar more than the ball, and the ball's ten cents. That means the bat's worth a dollar ten plus ten mm. cents would be a dollar twenty. So this is easy to figure out in an algebraic expression, but giving it in a word problem phrase, it will jump to that conclusion. That's very, 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 very good ninety-five percent of the time. Yeah. But you, if you're not aware of where you're going to miss it the other 5% of the time, you can find yourself dying of an overdose, basically is my message. And Patrick, I think it brings me of a mathematical story like that in my industry. I'm a financial advisor. Uh, I do investments for a living, or I did. I'm semi-retired at this point. 
but I'm, I'm not a mathematician. So there's a, people thought finance and math is the same thing. It it's, couldn't be farther from the truth. But I used to always present this example to clients to understand how losses are, are so much more important to understand than, than your gains. And the reason is this, if you have a, a dollar bill or you had you $100 in your portfolio and you lose 50% of your money, you're at 50 cents. Well, if you made your 50% back, you don't have a dollar. And when I would do that at workshops, I would I would ask that real quickly, you know. So you guys have $100,000, you lose 50%. The good news is the market comes back and you make 50% the next year. Where are you at? And everyone's like, 100000 I'm like, no, you're not. You're short. So you have to make more on the way up when you lose. And so investments aren't about making money. It's about not losing money. So that's how I presented the same thing. Um, but no, I, I think... I wanted to get your thoughts, uh, and I haven't obviously read your book yet. I just met you a couple weeks ago, but I plan on reading it. How you talk about autonomy all the time, but how, how perceptions and autonomy can affect behavior. Uh, and if there's a difference or if they're kind of the same thing, I guess, because I like to think I'm autonomous. I like, I named my nonprofit the Choices Network because I think we all are underselling the importance of how much control we really have. And it's so easy for alcoholics to just always blame the disease. And at some point, even if they're right, why can't they change the narrative and just trick their brain to believe that they actually have a more choice than they really do, maybe? I don't know. I do. <laughs> That's why you're on my Dude. show. <laughs> Two things. In the beginning, it's because humans are brilliant perceivers not very good interpreters. That's what we're talking about. That's the math problem stuff. Don't miss anything. Brilliant perceivers. Don't interpret it good all the time. That's very important. At the end of it, at the end of the continuum, whether you're dependent or autonomous, uh, it's because humans cling to the familiar. Mm -hmm. That's my whole why is a function of X. That's my whole theory. That's my whole diagram. Uh, what's the cause of addiction? Well, the cause of addiction is how our risk-benefit system works. And this is on the website. All these examples and all the other stuff's on the website. If you have a y-axis, and on top of the y-axis, you write benefit. And at the bottom of the y-axis, if you write risk, that, that's going to be your outcome line, right? That's your Y line. If you put an X axis there and start with new, everything's new at some point. Right. And you start something new, could be a new investment. Right. Could be a new friend, could be a new school, could be a new drug, could be anything. But whatever it is, if it's new, uh, sooner or later, over time, it's going to be familiar if I keep doing whatever that new thing is. Mm -hmm. So that's your timeline from new to the mm -hmm. familiar. Humans cling to the familiar. It makes us nearly like supermen, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, I don't have to relearn how to drive my car every day. I learned how to drive a car. I learned when I was 16, took a test to prove I learned and uh, practiced uh, driving, and I don't think about driving now. I don't have to think about, how does this work again? 
What is this thing in front of me? Uh, it's all automatic, right? It's back here. That's why it's hard to reach. A lot of things are hard to reach. Not because fear or anything else. It's back here. Yeah. I don't have I don't access it in a normal way anymore. And that goes with eating or drinking or any you know, any and all good things or bad. The perception part starts in the beginning. If I perceive something as new and good, these are all what we call risk response factors. The genius who figured all this out, there are several, but uh, David Ropick is the latest one and probably the un most un under uh, recognized one. He's a communications wow. guy and he's successful at it. And he's written several books and a bunch of articles. But he's in any of my research and any bibliography I have on my website, all these books are on there. Awesome. So, but he's the guy that identified these factors I'm saying. So new is a factor. Good yeah. is a factor. It's not the environment. It's not genetics. It's the risk response system. Yeah, so I, I do want to I do want to talk about um, kind of your thoughts on the uh, environment and genetics and then I, you know, mainstream calls it disease versus choice. Um, but I, I, I had a guest on last week. His name's David Essel and he's um, yeah. great, great guy. Uh, he has, I don't know how many books out, um, kind of a motivational, inspirational guy, but he, he said, and he stands by this pretty adamantly that the number one addiction is codependency. And the way he the way he presents it um, is very compelling that, you know, we we get distracted by addiction being, say, alcohol or addiction is, you know, um, gambling. You know, it's something that we uh, a specific uh, unit of something, whereas his thought is more codependency is the number one addiction that we have as human beings. And he presents very compelling uh, uh, argument for that. I just didn't know if you have thought about that as well. Oh, I think there are many lanes on the addiction highway and they're all exactly the same thing. And the codependency lane is the slow lane. Actually, the codependency lane is the emergency lane. <laughs> That's where they're waiting over there to get roll the car into the emergency lane and all the codependents will get over there and take care of them. Uh, so yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, and statistically it makes sense too. Most of the population is not gonna have an addiction problem except for that one. Hmm. <laughs> because they live autonomously. They, their risk response system is doesn't look and feel autonomous, it actually is autonomous. Mm -hmm. And that and the other can happen to anybody, usually the smarter people. <laughs> usually the brighter people but the your average bear not gonna have an addiction problem so the, the people listening to this may not have the um, uh, the ability to maybe grasp some of the concepts that you're saying because um, you know a lot of people especially are struggling with things and this is not to be, meant to be disparaging towards them but they're fairly simple-minded when it comes to understanding the why behind what they do. But you talk about environment and genes are irrelevant for autonomous people. 
Right. I guess what does that mean in in simpler terms for the average person listening? What does that really mean? What that means is no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the genetic presentation is, uh, some are going to be addicted and most are not. In other words, think of identical twins. When a, when a twin, an identical twin is a certifiable addict, it doesn't mean the other twin is going to be that way. Mm-hmm. Or even codependent a lot of times. Right. Uh, it's not genetic. Now, are there more chances that identical twins might both be alcoholics? Yes. But it's not It's not a gene. It's, there is no genetic expression for it. It's not like blue eyes. Hmm. If I had a twin brother right now, he would look just like me and have the exact same eyes that I do. But uh, so all that's been done long ago. It it comes down to basically one sentence is the way I look at it. Uh, it it's not the environment, it's not genetics, it's our interpretation of them. We're mm. back to the uh, how you interpret stuff. There are some people that grew up in conditions that would kill me. Right. But they're very successful people. Right. Is it because they're one in a billion? No, I think Malcolm Gladwell proved that. It's like no, they, they, they persevered. They mm-hmm. they did something for ten thousand hours, and became the best at it because they did something for ten thousand hours. Mm-hmm. They're not super people. I think we're all capable of that. I I have great you know uh, uh, respect for human life. Period. Any kind mm-hmm. at any level. But we can trick ourselves, and that accounts for 20% of the deaths in this population every year. So Hmm. it's sort of a serious shortcoming. Is it complicated? Yes, to explain it is. But it's really, I've done this with over 5,000 students. Not one of them said, this is too complicated for me. Yeah, and that's the first thing that I caught from your writings was this isn't that complicated. Um, it seems like so much of the problems we have can, if we address them at the appropriate time, which would be prior to the problem starting. And I, I've got a quote, I've got a quote that I use to my son, he's a golfer, and I write about this in my book. And I think I talked about this on our phone call, is I said, um, you know, Ian, he was like, I don't know, 12, 11 years old. He was struggling with getting out of the bunker, which we all do. I don't know if you golf, Patrick, but, you know, the sand traps are hard. <laughs> it's my ass every time. Especially fairway bunkers. You know, they're, 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 I don't know. Anyway, so I said, Ian, I have the, I have the, I have the solution to your problem. And his ears perked up and, and I said, do you know how to be a great bunker player? And he just thinks for a minute and he says, well, you got to hit the right club. You got to make sure it's, you know, you're hitting a wedge instead of a five iron. You got to, you got to hit behind the ball an inch and you got to swing full. And he gives me all these things. And I said, Nope. I know you know where I'm going with this, Patrick. I said, the best way to be a bunker player is don't go in the damn bunker in the first place. And he just kind of looked at me like, well, yeah, of course, dad. Well, 
as we went through this experience with his brother dying, Ian started saying this to his friends. The best way to quit drinking is to never start. The best way to quit drinking or smoking is to never start. And there's a lot of truth to that that is so freaking obvious. But why don't why don't we present this narrative more to our kids today, I guess, is where I'm probably heading with this. I think I think we do. Uh but yeah. not not to the degree necessary to be effective. Right. And this is a learning problem to me. There's a Russian guy out there that I found in my literature review called Vygotsky. Uh, I'll think of his first name here in a minute. But he's from Belarus, the country Belarus. And he figured out that... Uh, People can go and get certified and get licensed and get taught and learn theory and apply it, but you put them in the you put them in the show and they fall back into whatever they fall back mm-hmm. in their old ways. It's like what the mm-hmm. hell? I thought you trained these people. It's like I did, but they didn't learn. They figured out some things. They half learned, right. but when it came time under pressure to to perform. They didn't have it down enough to be able to actually do it. It's a learning problem. So we give, if we give too little of the wrong kind of information, we we may do harm. Now, the low-risk people are going to stay low-risk, right? It's like advice. It's like the, the wise don't need it and the fools won't heed it. Advice is not good. Education. Right. Well, look, before we get into that, I, I want to talk to you about the stages or levels that, that you've kind of identified. And I think that probably we should have started the show with that because that does kind of set the plate or set the table for a lot of what we talk about. So do you mind spending some time in explaining, I guess, are they are they levels or stages, do you like to call them? I call them stages. Okay. I don't know. I call them diff, something different every day. I change <laughs> every day, too. So today we'll call them stages. That works for me. And uh, and I get this from from every you know number of places, right? I get this from uh, this is some twelve step stuff and other yeah. other model, right? So that's how I started from a treatment center. So when people walk into a treatment center, they don't know what's going on. They know their families are worn out and said, "Here's your choice." Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're doing the best they can. And they think they're usually doing a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. I've seen people walk into interventions and show up in treatment. They'll they'll see everybody's car out there and they'll say, it's a surprise birthday. They never <laughs> see it coming. They believe in their hearts they are doing a good job and everybody else is about to shoot themselves. That's the discrepancy, you understand? I do, yeah, I do. I know you do. God love you. Well, we've all so. So what I do is show them a model on their first day, so they understand mm-hmm. where they are. And addiction's easy on the on the on the ill side of the curve, you know, on the far side of the continuum. It doesn't matter what the cause is. It does, don't need to know the cause. Just need the solution. And yeah. that's where AA is a genius. So, so from page XXVIII, the doctor's opinion, you learn, right, 
that uh, everybody uh, goes through some kind of a uh, stress level in life. Life is not easy for anybody. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets a free pass. Nobody gets an easy pass. There are no shortcuts for anybody. Uh, and we learn how to deal with that. And we learn how to face it. And we're either going to face it in an autonomous or a dependent way. But we're going to have to face it. Hmm. Now, some of us find Adderall or alcohol or food or sex or drugs or cutting or some way to manage stress. And if it works, we continue it. And and then, and as we continue it, it turns into not something that we're interested in, but something that becomes a little compulsive and eventually becomes obsession. Obsession is a mental thing. It's not a physical thing. It's a mental thing. Uh, now, and everybody gets this wrong. Uh, in uh, several different ways, which is why we start with it, so they don't get confused, the clients. If I do this process long enough, I physically start to become familiar with it also. And not only do I physically become familiar with it, I eventually build up tolerance. Not only do I build up tolerance, but I eventually max up my tolerance, and eventually my biology gets to where it's not used to existing without whatever it is I'm doing to manage my mental stress and and affects me physically. Uh, So for the alcoholics, the diagnosis is easy. Uh, There's, there's the mental obsession sooner. We can stop drinking anytime we want, but at some point when my thermometer reaches this level, it doesn't matter whether I got to pick up the kids at school or whatever my responsibilities are. It's time, the drinking, you know, it's time to drink. Mm-hmm. So I fit that into my schedule. I cope with it. Physically, I start to change. Uh, for alcoholics, we drink to get drunk. We don't drink just to cope. My body says, and this is a physical thing. It's not, not a mental thing. The physical thing that says, that was good. Do that again. And my mental part says, Okay, I think mm-hmm. I will. It looks like I have a choice, right? but I don't. My body says, do that again, and it's like, okay, I think I will. So while I'm doing the barbecue, I might drink a case of beer. Now, at the end of the day, I say, woo, that barbecue knocks me on my ass. No, it's the case of beer that knocked me on my head. Right. But it feels to me like it's a barbecue. So you come around, or you get, or you get in caught in some kind of tragic episode, and go to the hospital, jail, or whatever else one more time, and we emerge remorseful. This is a cycle, obsession, physical allergy, remorse, and swear to God I will never do this again, and mean yeah. it. Yeah. And I don't. Yeah. Up until this one idea outweighs all the other ideas to the contrary. That's the mental illness part. That's the lack of perspective. I need a hit right, this one hit, one line I do right now. I love these people. I love my health. I would die for these causes. But I don't see any of this. Right. I just see this. Right. That's a mental obsession. Once I do that, the physical allergy kicks in, 
We go to the hospital another time, and we emerge remorseful and swear to God we'll never do this again. This cycle is repeated over and over and over and over again until institution's death or you recover. There's That's it. Well, what, so that's the problem. So what's the right. solution? Well, the solution's easy. Don't put it in your body. You know, don't get in the sand trap. <laughs> yeah, I can't exactly. Get I don't. I don't have to skull the ball out of the trap. I don't go in the trap. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Some people can. I can't. I gave up that. I used all my drinks in this lifetime. I'm over my mm -hmm. quota, so I give that up. The mental part's a little trickier. The physical part's easy. Just don't put it in you. I can't have a physical reaction if I don't put it in me. The mental part means I'm going to have to change something. I have to change the way I think. We call that a psychic. There's a lot of different ways to put it. And it may depend on your personality, which one you like, but it doesn't matter. Pick one you like and then rock and roll. So that's, that's a treatment model is what I'm saying. So I took that treatment model and I say, all right. Let's break it out for college students and also put some risk response stuff in there. So you got stage zero. There's no mental problem in stage zero. There's no physical problem in stage zero. Everybody's happy. There is risk. There's always risk. So we, we look at risk. I got to look at my model now. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm confused myself. I do it all the time. I'm glad I looked because this is one of the points I was going to have to circle around. This. So there's no tolerance issues. There's no obsession issues at stage zero. What happens in a, uh, a well-developed stage zero is constructive paranoia. So I like what your son was doing going around saying, if you don't, you can't have a drinking problem, you don't start drinking. Why would you smoke a cigarette if it's going to give you cancer 50 years? Yeah. Yeah. So what you need is constructive paranoia. And there is such a thing. And I learned this from a guy called Jared Diamond. And he went to study New Guinea. This has to do with control, which is a risk response factor. I'll explain in a minute. But as he built a campsite in uh, New Guinea, he went there 50 years. He had a big, big budget grant to go study everything in New Guinea. And I built a camp, hired a bunch of New Guineans, and they said, we can't move into your camp. It's like, why not? Because you built your campsite around the dead trees. And we don't we don't sleep next to dead trees, ever. And he said, I should have known that. That's my fault. But let me, let me explain something to you. We're going to break down this camp at the end of the summer. I'll be back next year. We'll camp in a different place. Don't worry about it. I guarantee you, said the guy who knew nothing about the jungle, that this tree is not going to fall while, while we're sleeping under it. And they said, okay, we're going to sleep on the ground over here, and you sleep in the tents. Yes, so I go, all right, I'm learning something about New Guinea. They have a tree god of some sort, or it's part of the culture or something. Well, after 50 years, he realized he never slept anywhere in the jungle without hearing a tree fall somewhere. They yeah. fall all the time, and they fall during the day, too. And if you're walking yeah. around the jungle 365 days and nights a year, sooner, if you don't understand the way tree life works, you will be killed by a tree. 
Yeah. So he figured out the odds. So how do you beat that? Well, you never sleep. You can't get hit by a dead tree if you never sleep under one. You just don't seems do it. Seems logical. Yeah, it seems logical. I don't drive a car without putting on a seatbelt. It's just the yeah. way I am. I don't want to steer from the other seat. <laughs> when, <it's time, laughs> when it's time to make an evasive maneuver, you understand what I'm saying? I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, same kind of thing. There's just some things I don't need permission or want to do. It's not desire. It's not. It's not a loss. It's not willpower. It, there's no thought involved. There's no energy involved. There's no exchange. Uh, it's just here are the rules for this: texting and driving. I don't do it. Don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, won't do it. Don't. No. There's no temptation to do it. If I have to do it, I pull over. But not while I'm driving. Why would I do that? Uh, because it's convenient. And if I start doing it, and it works for me, then it starts to become a habit. Mm -hmm. And that's more of a stage one thing. But in stage zero, nobody smokes. If they drink, I wouldn't call it drinking. Right. They have a beer on their birthday or something. That To me, that's not drinking. If they drank a couple of beers a month, that's not drinking. Sort of, I'll judge about a couple of beers a day, not drinking to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, and most people don't drink, it turns out. This is something I found in my lit review. We've known this for decades. In Western societies, all, all of them. This is worldwide uh, where alcohol is served. Most people don't use alcohol. Or if they use it, it's not what I would be, I would call using. So what happens? So you go to stage one. Why? Well, there's no physical or mental issues. There's no obsession or tolerance or anything like that. But we're going to run into stuff that's new. And we're going to run into stuff that we perceive as good. And we're going to run into stuff that's like social proof. Yeah, yeah. So these are three factors that lower risk and inflate benefits. Right. And if I believe it's good and it'll do me some good and I believe it's doing you some good and I'm missing out on the good and it's a risk I can control, I'm in. Why wouldn't right. I do that? Right. So I do that. Then make friends, maybe have a little sex along the way. This is all developmental stuff. This is where we make our relationships and friends and ex life experiences in our high school, our formative years. These are very, you know, you take a 14-year-old and look at them six years later, you don't, you won't recognize them. Absolutely, yep. They're completely different people. I've heard dying is much easier than adolescence. Much, much, much less. There's almost no change involved at all. I don't think you'll get many there's arguments from a lot of people on that. Hey, I got There's a complete change. I got a question on the, I know you haven't got to the other stages yet, but I thought I'd throw this out there, but sure. can you be born into a stage? Yeah, stage zero. You're born with all of these uh, risk response factors. We know how to use new, good, social proof, commitment, control, all these things we know how to use to our benefit. And nobody teaches us how to use them. We learn by doing and watching 
And sometimes we interpret a little bit wrong. What's your thoughts That's on people it. that have been, that were born from maybe a meth addicted mother uh, or an alcoholic mother that, um, you know, or heroin using parents that, um, what's your thoughts? Is that person, you know, born into a different stage at that point? No, uh, no, not the way I think. They're just because it's just not, there's a scientific test, you understand? Here's the scientific test. Get two questions. Is what you're describing necessary for addiction? No, it's not. Right. And is it sufficient for addiction? No, it, it's not. Could it influence addiction? Yes. Here's how. If, if my risk response system mimics my, if I have the same mistaken goals as my parents, well, yeah, the outcomes are going to be similar. Well, those goals, yeah, I can change my goals and my patterns anytime I want if, if I know about them. Well, predisposed to do something doesn't mean you're predetermined to do it. Exactly. Right? Right. Yeah. I've, I've, I've said that for a long time and I'm not taking, I'm not, I'm not taking away. Yeah. I'm not taking away the ability for somebody who has been, you know, you know, born from a meth addicted mom, let's say, I'm not taking away their ability to use that as maybe an explanation for some of the things that have happened to them as they got older. I mean, everyone has a right to do that. You can always tell yourself a new story uh, about your past or you can be hung up on your past, either one. Um, but I've, I've always been intrigued by, by, like you said about the twins, you know, same house, same environment, same everything and how one child can just you know, I go back to my to my son, you know, grew up in the same house. It's like, how can one with everything being the same, make all these horrendous decisions? I mean, these weren't just bad decisions like cheating on a test or stealing from a candy store. These are really bad decisions. Um, and then my other two boys haven't made any of those decisions. So it's just, I don't know. I'm, I'm never going to stop trying to figure out why to some of these things for it, that, that, that's happened to me. Let me show you. Somebody I figured you had. I figured you were going to help me off the ledge here, Patrick. <laughs> so stage zero and one. There's no tolerance issues. There's no obsession issues. There are some risk factors that come into play at stage one. New, good, and social proof. Yeah. Social proof is not uh, peer pressure. Peer pressure is weak. It's actually very, very strong. But compared to social proof, it's not strong at all. Mm -hmm. Social proof is very powerful. Uh, so if I went outside, I, when I and my students would go and test this all the time. If you go out in the quad and you sit there and look up, and you do it for 20 minutes, you'll have 100 people out there looking up. Because they know you know something they don't know. Yeah. And now, and now they have to... Now they have to find out what it is. Right. And it's the same with anything. If I walk on the campus and I see people smoking crack over there, I just found out where the place to smoke crack is. Right. It's not bad or good or right or wrong. It's, I did not, I'm learning. Right. That's, that's what happens over there. So, uh, 
There is a stage two. Stage two is if I find something I like because it's new, good, and social proof, and I keep doing it, my body will start to adjust to it. And I will build tolerance. And I will require more and more in order to achieve the same effect mm -hmm. if it's a drug. And anything that changes my uh, endocrine system, I call a drug. Mm -hmm. So it could be sex, could be smoking, could be anything that changes the way I feel because of my chemistry changes on the inside is a drug. And all drugs, all drugs have side effects. Mm -hmm. uh, mentally, I do start to change in stage two. I start to become a little impulsive. In other words, when somebody says, hey, Pat, you want to do this? I don't have to think about it. I say, well, we, the other three things we did turned out pretty good. So, yeah, let's, let, I'm down. Let's do mm -hmm. it right now. And I start to attribute value to what I'm doing. I'm, and I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Uh, this is also where group polarization happens. It doesn't happen way down the road. It happens early on. Right. Uh, I stop associating with other people, not because I'm all that selfish at this point, but because I want to make sure the group I hang with now knows I've earned my chair here. So whatever you're doing, I'm going to do that and a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Just so mm -hmm. you know, and the guy that comes in behind me, he's going to do everything I do plus a little bit more. And you do a couple of generations of that, all of a sudden you have a very extreme group and nobody planned on being in an extreme group. Right. And then all of a sudden we're raiding the Capitol. <laughs> we can't go there. I'm not allowed to discuss it. We we're not, we're not talking about that. <laughs> How did that? Why are they shooting at us? It's so backwards. They're so surprised. It's the same kind of stuff. Uh, euphoric recall happens here, of course. Humans are bad about that. We don't mm -hmm. remember the bad stuff. We remember the good stuff. Your son saw some good stuff. He did. Mm -hmm. I guarantee it. Yeah. Uh, and this is where escalation comes in and commitment. It's kind of a misuse of a commitment. It's starting to become fear-based now because I don't want to lose what I found. Nobody else is giving me shit. So here I am enjoying life, and I am somebody with some of my people, and this is the way we roll. I, I'm not going to change easily from that. Of course, this is where, unfortunately, in stage one and stage two, people get killed because uh, they don't know what they're doing. So the 75% that are low risk to ever be alcoholics, more of them will die from alcohol poisoning than all the other chronic people combined. And why is that? That's called the prevention paradox. That's because you got a large amount of people that are untreated and a very small, relatively small amount of people that are being treated and nobody's bothering to take what we learn here and transfer it over here. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's where you're talking about the, the, the treatment part is I'm not going to say it's too late, but it seems like um, 
Why wait? Yeah, I mean, exactly. And I, I, I've, I've come to realize that, you know, for me to really add value to my story, I, I need to get to people prior. And that's why I wanted you on the show, because that's your whole story, basically, is we spend as a society so much money, so much time, so much uh, emphasis on repairing the car after it's broken. And, and we don't spend time on getting good parts, assembling it correctly, taking our time, you know, everything's running well before we go out on the road. And in life, we're not arming our kids. We're not arming our children. And I don't know if arming is the correct way. You know, we're not, we're not doing it correctly. Because obviously, if we were, this wouldn't be happening. Or a lot of it wouldn't be happening. I agree. And we know more now. It's just a matter of how to apply it. And I think the best way to apply it is in a model. Yeah. Because we have an old saying in AA, you know, you can always tell an alcoholic, <laughs> but you can't tell them much. <laughs> it's true. Boy, yeah, that, that's very true. But I could show them yeah. in my own experience, strength, and hope. And they right. won't take that personally. Right. And if they relate to it, they'll say, okay, well, if you can do that, so can I. And people walk out of death traps. And that's all I'm They're trying all to do. Them. Patrick, with the Living Undeterred project I'm on, that's all I'm trying to do is tell my story. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a uh, theologian. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm, I'm simply somebody who has had uh, what many consider the most traumatic event possible, I I losing a child, and at the same time lost a marriage during, during this time. And, but yet, I, I'm at a point in my life where I feel like I'm at, at the best place I've been in a long time, if ever. But why did it take all these things to happen to me for me to see that? And if I can bottle that and go to people before they have child die or before they have a divorce, and you need to be very grateful of the great life you do have. Don't have death remind you as a teacher how important life really is. Show them a model. Tell your story. <laughs> Show them a model. I'll and show them your you model. Can... I'll show them your model. How's that? I'm giving you a model to show <laughs> for free. And if you're wearing out, I'll give you a new one. <laughs> so the uh, so you got all those things happening in two. Yeah. Most of the population will go back to zero or one after a bad experience or something that wakes them up or a moment of clarity or somebody does notice and say, I, I have failed you. I did not know it, but I see something is wrong now and we're going to have to talk mm -hmm. and here's what life is and start fucking living or start fucking dying. Right. And, um, after those kinds of talks, most will pick up their kits and tools and start to redo. It's like, what am I interested in? What's my purpose? How do I contribute? These are all new goals. New goals is what we're after. But if they don't have the experience, they go on to stage three. Stage three is where tolerance peaks. Physically, we have now changed. We, we can do massive quantities without being affected that much. Hmm. This reminds me of Dr. Carl Hunt, you know, the guy uh, that's got his New York Times bestseller. He's a successful Princeton professor and... Uh, does talks around the world and is all about cleaner dope. 
He's saving lives by making sure you only get the amount of fentanyl necessary. I wrote his name down because I saw a comment you made on LinkedIn. Uh, what's his name again? Uh, Carl Hunt. Dr. Yeah, Carl Hunt. I, I did read the comments you made on that. And uh, I thought, you know, obviously his his um, presentation of this, uh, his perception, I guess, or his thoughts uh, definitely are something that are, are, are challenging. I mean, it, it's definitely a different way to look at things. But I, I understand when, when you answered it, I saw your comments and um, I thought I was I was interested in how you answered that. Yeah, he very much convinced himself he is autonomous. Yeah, he's not right, uh, and you could see it clearly in his story. So his story, I'll tell you what. So right, so he's not at stage. Th- so here's stage three: tolerance peaks. Uh, you become preoccupied. You're no longer impulsive. It's all about what you do. Right. It, it, either I'm preparing to get high or I'm high, or I'm getting over getting high and preparing to get high again. So it becomes a priority in my life. That by itself is not addiction, but it looks like it and it's very close to it. Paradoxically, these people tend to be professional about what they're doing. Not many of them die. They're not gonna be in the acute accident. They don't have car accidents. They don't have alcohol poisoning. They don't overdose. Now are these functional? Are these called functional alcoholics then, Patrick? These can be functional. You can be at two okay. or three. People move back and forth between all these stages right. in a very, very predictable way. That's what kills people. Mm-hmm. So by now, uh, with the risk response system, it's about it's all about familiar. It's not about the new. New is not attractive in stage three. New is risky. That's why they're safer. They don't do new stuff. They don't do. They don't look for new people to do new stuff with. Uh, they do what they do, and they stick to it, and they habituate it. And for them, that feels good, and they believe it is good. And they're very optimistic, even though they may have been thrown out of a couple of schools or visited a couple of jails or been mm-hmm. in and out of a couple of hospitals. They're going to think, you know what, that was a stupid part, and I'm better than that now, and I know better now, and I'm due. And now, now I, and now I will find my purpose. <laughs> well, they don't have time to find their purpose now, because now they're in survival mode. Mm-hmm. They can go back to stage zero if they want to, if they know about it. Maybe with a little counseling, they'll have to understand how to get rid of a few self-defeating beliefs maybe, or explain a few things to themselves, or learn a, a couple of adult concepts like goals and objectives. But if they don't, over time, and it doesn't take very much time, they will go into where they're stage four. This is where I see Dr. Carl Hunt and, and a lot of kids. It doesn't take long for this. It's a developmental process. It doesn't take long to develop. We used to think, understand, we used to think as a industry that addicts stopped developing, right? We used to say, when was your first drink? 12 years old. Well, obviously, you stopped developing at 12. No wonder you act like a 12-year-old. You started drinking when you were 12, and you yeah. never developed. Right. Uh, we were wrong. They're highly developed. They developed every single day after that first drink in a wrong direction. 
They're they're highly developed. That's a bad mistake. Hmm. Uh, so uh, withdrawal mentally, stage four, it is now an obsession. I can stop anytime I want, but I cannot stay stopped, and it is life or death. Hmm. I will. You can put, hold a gun to my head, but now you're gonna have to kill me because I'm gonna use again. Can you beat it out of them? No. Everybody's tried that. Yeah, it doesn't work. Won't work. Can, can you scare it out of them? No. Oh. Everybody's trying that. Can you threaten them? No. Can you medicate them out of it? Yeah, boy, are they trying. No. The answer has for 200 years been no. Will it, will it save some life? Can some make it through uh, long enough to uh, get help? Yes. Right. I will say that. But uh, what the hell? How many billions? Why don't you spend $10 and save, you know, everybody rather than. Uh... So anyway, stage four, they will be desperate for change. They will cling to the familiar. They cannot let go of the familiar. They will do anything but change. Uh, pain and suffering are big part of state that these are risk response factors. We pain and suffering affects my risk benefit calculations. When I stop, the pain starts and mm -hmm. it climbs dramatically. And it's not physical pain, it's psychic pain. Psychic pain has no boundaries, and this is why people kill themselves. Hmm. They can't do another cycle. They're not willing to do enough. This is the old addict saying, we're not afraid of dying. We don't fear that. We, we're terrified of living. Absolutely. Now we're stuck in a place. We're terrified of living. Can you help me with that? I wrote a whole blog oh, called, the, I wrote a whole blog called The Fear of Living based on that premise is that most people aren't afraid of death. They're afraid of living. That's why they do all these things that are, that are self-destructive and self-sabotaging. But that's not where it started, but that's right. where it ends up. Right. That's what you have to hold. That's the concept that you have to hold in the back of your head. You can't love them until they love them. You can try. That's the codependent way. Uh, might allow you to go to bed at night. It's not going to help them. You have to carry a little more weight. So, Patrick, uh, what, that. what's the... How, how do you... What's the solution here, I guess? I mean, you've identified so many important things that as people kind of navigate their their own life's journey through all these different you know experiences and thoughts they have i mean i guess if you were to just simplify this to somebody you know what's i guess what's the solution to all this well that's a great question this is a, this is why we should talk i mean this is so when i present that model just like i did to you probably with a few more stories and other things like that uh, I'll ask them. I'll say, so tell me, in this group of 30 students, I'll do, you know, a freshman orientation class at a time, 25 students at a time, whatever it is. <clears throat> and I'll say, all right, tell me what stage you were at. I have them write it down. Tell me what stage you were at. Tell me what stage you are at. And tell me what stage you will be at. And they'll give me three letters. 75% of the time, it's going to look like I was a zero. I am a one. I will be a zero. Hmm. Or I am a zero. I was a zero. I'm going to be a zero. 
three zeros, and, or some combination of zero and one. Seventy-five percent are going to give me that kind of number. Wow! Mostly zero, zero, zero. Now there will be twenty percent. They'll say, "I was a four. Yeah, I am a four, and I want to be a zero. Right. So that was a forty-five minute intervention, no drama, kind of fun, and to have somebody say, "I don't know it, but I'm an addict." Now I know it. And now I know what to do. I've start, and now I've started to learn what to do about it. That that's what happens. Or the or it'll be a score like, I was a two, I am a three. I'd like to be a one. I, or I was a I was a two. I am a two. I'd like to be a two. So you go. So I could find out the twenty percent that actually changed. They actually drop a level below two to either one or two. So I've got a whole set of, uh, you know, uh, an algorithm to slice and dice these numbers. And then there'll be the 5% that'll basically say through the numbers they give me, I was a four, I am a four, I'm going to be a four. Uh, or I was a four, I am a four, I want to be a two. Or I am a three, three, three. There's, there's 125 different combinations, what I'm trying to tell you. The point is, I find the ones that are, they don't want to be high risk, they don't want to be a four, but they don't want to be a zero either. Yeah. These people are screwed because it's a progressive, development is progressive. Yeah. So they're going to have to explain to themselves. So they were sure what they were doing was right for them. And I come along and introduce all this ambivalence, yeah, in my clownish way. And now they're gonna fight. They can't fight me. They're gonna have to fight themselves. Right, right. And they're gonna have to come to terms with it. And they got a map. And there, there's a way. They have a drawing. They have a. They have a compass now. And the others just flat say, "I did not know that's where I was going," and now I want to go back. Well, you can't go back, but you can go forward by just mentally and physically, by being constructively paranoid. Right. That's why I don't like the word rehab, because who wants to be rehab back to what you were when that's why you are what you are? So, exactly. you know, to me, it's like, let's don't rehab. Let's just reinvent. Let, let's create a new you from now on. Exactly. <laughs> Good. I like that. Um, so uh, I guess one thing I would add, and then I want to spend the last few minutes just how people can reach you, how people can get your book, um, how people can learn more about your your thought process on these things. But I I think the, the thing that people have to figure out on their own, uh, whether it's before they become an addict or maybe their levels or stage zero, or maybe they are stage four, whatever their stage is. At the end of the day, you have to figure out your why. You've got to find something that will change that destructive behavior. The road that the two roads that you have in front of you, one is paved with, you know, broken hearts and, and dead bodies and just torture and pain. The other one is hope and optimism and, and some clarity on your life and enjoyment with the one life that you have. And I think for me, the why was easy. 
my son dying. I, I don't need anything else. I don't need God. I don't need a motivational book. I don't need models. I don't need maps. I just, I, that's all I need. Um, but for someone who doesn't have a child that, that died of addiction and, and, and those things, they have to find a why, right? Uh, I believe all people are motivated. It's just motivated for what? <laughs> yeah, the, the right things. The right things. Goals and objectives. So the way, so the way it goes for the students I see, and everybody in real life is, the trick is what I found the the discovery is, the seventy five percent were screw you know when I look at the data they were screaming the solution at me and I couldn't hear it because I was focused on the disease end of the continuum yeah. just like everybody else yeah I made the same bias error. It's called selection bias. Yeah, absolutely. I'm affected by it, right? Yeah. Well, they helped me get over it by saying, look, all of your little risk response things that fit so well for the addict, they don't fit for us. We're over here, we go zero or one. And it's like, okay, let's say you never go do anything but zero or one just like 75 out of 100 are telling me. Mm -hmm. How would that work? Well, obviously, news going to have to be in one, and habituation or the familiar is going to have to be at stage zero. So these people go, try something. If it works, they habituate it in zero, and then go back to one and try something else. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't work, they reject it and do pain and suffering, not, not in stage four, in stage one, mm -hmm. they get over it. Stage one, they get over it after one experiment, not a million. They don't keep trying to manage results. They accept the results and go back to zero and do something different. They change every single day. They grow and develop every single day in a way that serves their goals, their strengths, and so on, and their desire, just like you with your motivation based on your, you found your purpose. Mm -hmm. It's the same way. If you get hung up and trying to, uh, and the, the tool I finally found is called the Colombian uh, uh, multivariate uh, analysis tool uh, and a couple other different names, but uh, I won't, I like to talk about it because I like learning about it, but I'm not going to waste our time on it here. No, that's fine. Actually, um, I, I want to be respectful of your time as well. We've, we've, like I figured our conversation would go by fast. We're already over an hour. Um, how, how can people get a hold of you and more importantly, maybe a quick uh, little, um, little pitch on your book? Uh, well, the book is at Amazon and uh, it is a, uh, I would watch the videos for free before I bought the book. <laughs> and where's the videos at then? Or where are the videos? The videos at? are on my uh, website at uh, Prehab Map. Prehab, uh, just like it sounds, P R E H A B, map with two P's, M A P P uh, dot com. Prehabmap.com. So, Prehabmap, M A P P dot com. I'll have some uh, information on my, my sites as well. Um, and there's a series of links. Okay. So I got my journal articles. Yeah. So you can buy the book there if you want. It takes you to Amazon. 
with the videos. Yeah, that thing is there. Right. Yeah. I, I, guys I, on LinkedIn. I researched you a little bit. I vetted you to make sure you were legit. So, <laughs> and you passed. I, uh, I appreciate, uh, I see you online and uh, I'm aware of your presence. Uh, and uh, I try not to let anybody down with comments. I do piss off some people. No, it's okay. Uh, I, I'm. I, it, it, listen, I people ask me all the time for advice, and I, I, am a dad. That I mean, that's what I am. I'm a passionate dad, and I, I have no clinical experience in any of this stuff. I had a finance degree in college, but for the rest of my life, I'm dedicating to get more educated on this stuff, and um, that's what I want to do. And it took losing a lot for me to gain a lot. And I'm trying to teach people that not just addicts and stuff, but people have dealt with trauma that even though you feel like you've lost maybe your childhood or you've lost a, a spouse or a, or a son or a brother, you also have to find something to gain out of that. And it can't be a zero sum. It can't be a net net. I can't lose my son and find something to replace it. I got to find something to better myself. And so with that, I'm going to end the Living Undeterred uh, show for today. And Patrick Moore, I am honored to meet you. And I think you bring a, a breath of fresh air, a, a new lens, maybe an older lens, because you've actually done this for a while. Um, it's a new lens for me. And I am going to have your information available on my website. And I'm sure you and I on social media will um, bump into each other plenty of times. And I maybe down the road, like to have you back as a guest. Uh, if you can help me figure out how to explain it simpler to more people, I would be forever indebted, and I I don't doubt that you can do that. I'm gonna take so, something you I'm gonna take some of your stuff you said, and I'll probably repackage a little bit of it, and and you'll see it on my social media. But uh, you will help many, and uh, and for that I'm grateful to meet you. Well, you as well, my friend. And uh, again, your book is called Prehab, Levering Perceptions to End Substance Abuse. And yeah, I leveraging say- perception, changing perception, leveraging perception to end substance abuse. I don't think we have to have substance abuse at all. Well, I, I don't think it's optional. We don't it's- need Yep, I agree with it's you like wholeheartedly. So, Patrick, thank you, my friend. And... Um, and uh, I appreciate well, what you're doing and um, keep trying to live undeterred, right? Uh, count on it. Peace. Take care.